What's up, everyone, and welcome back to Inking Out Loud. Today, for episode 35, we're diving back in to the second part of The Shadow Rising, book four of The Wheel of Time. I am your host, as usual, Rob Santos. I'm joined once again by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? Returning special guest, ca oh, I almost said captain, Lieutenant Jared Livingston. How dare you? <laughs> yeah, gotta demote him. You gotta demote him a little bit. Well, I, yeah, I'm looking at the, the exact same one from last time. And our second special guest, Mr. Peter Goebel. Yeah, man, I'm just wondering how uh, Jared got into the military to begin with. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I think you'd have to go back to Layer of Bones, the, uh, I think our 10th episode, and listen to our intros for uh, for an answer to that question right there. But anyway, welcome we'll to the show, we'll Peter. Do. Thanks for coming back, and thank you again for coming back, Jared. Of course. Now, yeah, thanks. Real quickly, before we jump straight into the episode, I'm going to remind everyone once again, like I did last episode, that our discussion will be slightly different for The Shadow Rising uh, because one of our guests is reading the series for the first time and we're going to avoid spoilers for that reason, for anything past The Shadow Rising. So nothing past the end of book four uh, for today. So now that introductions are out of the way, I'm going to pass off to Drew here so that he can give us a recap of everything that we've read for this second third of The Shadow Rising. Drew! Take it away. Alrighty. So, yeah, with this section, we uh, pick up right where we left off after Ren made his announcement that he's heading to the Aiel Waste. And he takes a big group of, you know, all the Aiel and Warren, Lan, Egwene, Matt. They all head out to a portal stone and head straight to Roydian, where Rand uh, goes through a very interesting experience through the Glass Column Turangrail sees the history of the Aiel through his ancestors' eyes. And meanwhile, Matt goes through a second redstone doorway, meets the Eelfin this time, and thinks he knows the rules but doesn't, and ends up getting hanged on Avendasora, the Tree of Life, almost dies, is saved just in the nick of time by Rand, performs CPR on him, and they escape through a bubble of evil. And uh, in the meantime, Moiraine and Avienda both also head down to Roydian and uh, go through a different Tarangrail that gives them visions of possible lives they will have and might have had, uh, very similar to what we saw with the Portal Stone back in The Great Hunt with Varen and Rand and, and company. Not the same thing, but similar. Let's just put it that way. It's similar. Uh, and uh, meanwhile... Perrin is back in the Two Rivers. He finds out that things are way out of control there. There are shadow spawn throughout the countryside, attacking places. The White Cloaks are there, causing trouble as usual. But most importantly, he finds out his whole family has been killed. And we get a pretty touching scene uh, when he discovers that with Fayil. And, you know, he, he uh, takes it upon himself after that to kind of take control of things and he meets up with Tam and Abel Coffin, and they head north, rescue some prisoners from the White Cloaks, and go out Trolloc hunting, which they're pretty successful at until they're ambushed. And uh, they barely escape and start getting taken care of by the Tuatha An camp in Two Rivers, the Tinkers, uh, who are some people that we're familiar with, Rain and Isla and Aram from back in the Eye of the World. And... Uh, our, our third uh, plot line is with the Wonder Girls, with Elaine and Nynaeve and Ta uh, Tom and Julian, and they are heading out to Tanchico, where we have some kind of 
amusing scenes of Elaine getting really, really drunk. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that, that's about where we left off though, was, was right when Perrin and company got to the care of the Tinkers. I'm so glad you mentioned that scene about Elaine getting drunk, because I yes. might have just forgotten about that otherwise, <laughs> I probably that was one of my favorite too. scenes in the whole book. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm really glad that she's you actually like, mentioned that this time around. Sorry, go ahead. She's like, I never finished my glass of wine, <laughs> even though the waiter was like right there refilling oh, it constantly. <laughs> Yeah, oh, and this has got to be like her, probably her first real experience with. Oh moves, yeah, definitely. Right? Like she's definitely yeah, she's never been able to kind of let loose as the daughter heir of Andor with all these expectations in her life. That was kind of a really awesome scene. Um, but to start 100%. us off, to start us off, I want to address a, a very small, just very small point of contention between Drew and I, and that is with the pacing of this second third of this book because I feel like the pacing kind of toned down a little bit it brought us it brought it, it got you know a little um i don't want to say it got slower but it was a little more i don't know watered down with, with with the first third of this book we had the bubble of evil arriving immediately we had the stone stands and now for this entire second third we have rand taken out of his element in the stone of tear and rather than kind of ruling everyone around him he's back into this fish out of water scenario where he's cast into a more of a of a discovery role with the aiel and their customs perrin on the other hand represents the opposite the flip side of that of course a lot of things are happening to and for perrin at this point his plot line is significantly progressing but my my main issue is is that i think it sounds like to me, uh, Drew, that you're equating Rand's experience in the the way back to Rangrial in in the Roydion sequence as the narrative picking up in pace, which I don't really agree with. I think it's like that's it's it's it was don't get me wrong, fantastic, one of the most jaw dropping sequences in the entirety of the Wheel of Time, but I don't feel like it really picked up the pace of this of this story as much as you seem to feel like it did so i, I want to hear what you think and, and i want to hear you justify why you think the the pacing kind of picked up for this part well before i do that i want to get peter's opinion on this oh yeah, yeah okay, sure and you know what rob i'll say it if you can't the pace was slower okay and <laughs> maybe i get beat up for that but that's okay i'm just a guest it's not a big deal <laughs> um to me it was slower reading through it for the first time and I think it was slower for the same reason that I found parts of the first three books slower. And that is that reading through for the first time, you don't always understand the amount of foreshadowing that you're reading. You don't always understand what's being woven together. And for instance, that scene in Roydian that we'll go into more later, where Rand is getting the history of the Aiel through the eyes of his ancestors... Um, yeah, we, we don't at that point understand the consequences of that experience for Rand. And if you're not into the sake, you know, history for the sake of history, that can feel, um, slower. Um, similarly, uh, there, there's some interesting things happening with, with the, uh, with, with the Wonder Girls, but, um... With with Tan Chico, I, we get a little bit of uh, Iganen or um, I always pronounce that wrong. I don't know what I'm Aguianen. saying. Aguianen. Yeah. That's okay. How I pronounce we it. we, we get a little bit of Aguianen, um and similarly, reading through the, for the first time at this point in the book, I didn't understand the consequences that was going to have, 
And I was really in the middle of the Shadow Rising living for those uh, Perrin chapters and seeing how things were progressing right. in the two rivers. And, you know, this, this mystique behind Slayer. Who is Slayer? And <laughs> also reading through the, for the first time, I know there's... You, I know the number of Forsaken that we're going to meet is 13, right? And mm -hmm. I've not met all of them yet, so... I'm checking off the Forsaken on my Forsaken list, and meanwhile reading about Slayer, and I think at one point I pressed Drew, like, Slayer is Asmodian, right? Like, I, and I know I was, I was wrong <laughs> about that now, but, like, that's that's just one of those predictions I remember making. It's not and as I, bad as Caldevwin, Drew. <laughs> hey, 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 no, the, the only thing that disproves my Caldevwin theory is uh -huh. the companion entry on Caldevwin. There, there's nothing in and the actual canon basic of the books logic that just forward that thinking, but okay. No, in basic no. sense, but no. And we'll we'll discuss that. If you another want to hear episode. the rest of this theory, go back to our Great Hunt episode. <laughs> the Great Hunt Part One. I think it was near the end. Yeah, yeah. I, th I think it's Great Hunt Part One. But anyway, Jared, what do you think about the pacing in, in Shadow Rising? Uh, can I just say that I'm on <laughs> Team Drew for the pacing of <laughs> okay. this section? Good man. First of all. Uh, this is the Vrodian. The Vrodian sequence oh, is one of my favorite in the entire series. And now I admit that, kind of like Peter said, I am one of those people that likes history for the sake of history. But I don't think that's the only reason this is in here, right? It's not just backstory for the sake of backstory. And I, I, I don't know. The, the ending with drilling into the boar is just one of the most exciting scenes in the book for me personally yeah and so i and i don't think and I, as far as perrin in in the two rivers go i wouldn't call that slow at all really neither yeah. would i so so my my kind of defense of uh my opinion on the pacing here is twofold uh the easy one is that the rodian sequence is not just rant it's also Matt going back through the redstone doorway, which is packed full of action and, and dangerous sequences. And then we get the, uh, the bubble of evil as they're leaving Rodian. You know, there's, there's a lot to, to get your blood pumping in this section. And on top of that, even when you're a first time reader, there is enough in the, uh, the Rand way back to Rongrail sequence that you have prior knowledge of to engage with. Like, like the, the idea that you're finding out that the Aiel, this society that's been built up as, like, rabid, amazing warriors, you know, you, you have all of these uh, colloquialisms in in the Westlands, in Randland, about, like, you know, black-veiled Aiel and black-eyed Aiel and this idea that they're these, like, dangerous savages and all this stuff. And you find out that their origins were the pacifist way of the leaf, you know, uh, no violence whatsoever. Like these are these are groundbreaking revelations. And on top of that, you find out in the sequence the Genaiel served the original dragon and served Lanfear back in the day <laughs> and things like that. Like. There are so many revelations, ground-shaking revelations in that sequence that even when the flashbacks aren't full of action, which some of them are, we also get a flashback to, you know, the, the moment the first Gen Aiel committed 
a, a murder, you know, where they're they're attacking the camp and they're like veiling themselves for the first time. They use the spear that was, you know, like like it's not like there's no action here, and it's definitely not like there aren't uh, revelations that you can dig into as a first time reader. And that's why I think it, it's so powerful to jump straight from where we left off last week to where we picked up here, you know, and, and, and of course this entire thing is couched in the context of Rand has to do this if he's going to gain the allegiance of the Aiel the way he wants. And that's a major, major point of contention in this book. So, so since we're on the subject of the Roydeon sequence, um, I think this is a, a, an opportune time for me to get a confession out of the way. All right. What are you holding up? Oh. Oh, I'm teasing my beer. He's teasing his beer. I just saw the first four words of, first four letters of a beer, and I, I'm already mad at how much of a better choice I think it is than my beer. Hold on. We'll find <laughs> out. But this is a good spot for me to come clean. Drew, you're, I, you, yeah. I think you might be finding this out for the first time. I don't know if I've actually told you this yet. Um, prepare yourselves, everybody. But on my first read-through oh God. of The Shadow Rising, uh-huh. uh, we, we approached the Roydeon dream sequence. I didn't give a fuck. I had no what? idea what was happening. I had no context for who any of these people were. I didn't give a shit about their problems or what was going on. And I got, and I pretty much skipped most of it. Podcast over. My, Sorry, guys. Yeah. Podcast over. And on my second read through, I remember going into it again and said, oh, yeah, this part, and skipping it again. Um, I did that a few You're times. Dead to me. I did that a few times. I had, I just kind no of. No longer friends. I'm speechless. Fucking glossed over everything speech. that I found in there. The one point I will say was at the very end when Rand comes out of it and his first thought is an incredulous sort of, did I just see the hole being drilled? Did I just see the bore being drilled into the Dark One's prison? And I went, <gasps> what did I just miss? And I went back and I, and I read those last couple pages and I was like, huh, I still have no context what's happening. So I still don't care. It wasn't until I hit, like, 21, 22, when I really understood the importance of what that was. And I went back, and I devoured these. Because I was already very familiar with Wheel of Time at that point, And it had just ended. So, that's my confession. I didn't read these until the Wheel of Time was complete. And now, having said that... I have read them about <laughs> All right, eight times, it. nine times, and it has become one of my favorite sequences. Now that I understand what the hell I was reading. In my defense, my only defense, I was like 12, 13. I was like, yeah, I want to get back to Rand. I want to get back to Perrin. It was, it was a stupid, immature mistake. All right, I'll let you guys just kind of simmer on that one there. Come back down there. <laughs> I, I just... Hey, well, actually, one one interesting one interesting thing that I've done is gone back and reread it the other way around. Yeah, sure. From, like going the forward. back of the two. That's another thing that threw me off. Front, it was going farther and farther back in time as he was going forward. Right. It me up so much. Okay. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I, I think I cut you off there, Jared. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you were done. 
No, Drew. No. So yeah, I'm just going to say right now, I, I just facepalmed. Yeah. So hard, I had to take off my wedding ring so I wouldn't, like, <laughs> bruise my forehead. I haven't told you this before, have I? No, you have not, and I am absolutely... <laughs> baffled? Yeah. Is it? Is there a superlative for baffled? Like... Um, flabbergasted. Like, oh my... Yeah, flabbergasted. That's a good one. That's, that's nice. Uh... <laughs> Oh my goodness. <laughs> I feel like I couldn't tell you that beforehand. I had to get your reaction live on the podcast. Oh. Wait, wait, wait. Did you lose interest before or after they used the stone? Oh, no, no, no. It was just the visions in Roydeon. That was that it was just the uh the characters uh Muradin. No, no, Muradin was was Kuladin's brother. Yeah, Muradin's brother. Who am I saying? brother, yeah. Uh who is the the um damn it. The the first name we got. It started with an M, I think. Ah, it doesn't matter. It was as soon as we got mm. into that first flash, and it was just Manduin? the flashbacks. Manduin. Like he was Manduin. Yes, that's how it started off. Was it? I, I I'm think? not actually sure no, about no, that. No, you're thinking of his grand's father, Janduin. No, well, let's see here. Uh, Road to the Spear. Irrelevant. Mandian. Man, I was close. Mandine, yes. He was Mandine. That's how, yeah, that's right. That's how uh, Michael Cranmer. Mandine? That's how Ma- they pronounce it? He was the- Mandine. Yeah. Um, Weird. But, well, it's yeah. spelled M A N D I N, so Mandian. Yeah. You just M A N D I N as Mandian. I did. Mandian. Irrelevant. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it was from Mandian's point of view, all the way through the last one. Uh, started with a C. Uh, 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 drawing Charn? a blank on it. Charn. Yeah. It was. The, it was just the Roydian flashback sequences. Since we had literally zero context for what we were reading, and you just kind of had to put the pieces together yourself, I was not interested, nor did I have the patience to do that when I was 12, I was, 13 years old. I was about to say, you were a very impatient reader. I you was were a very, a impatient very, reader very impatient reader. I, <laughs> yes. I wouldn't say that we had zero context. Did uh, we have context first, for what the hell he was seeing? I, I, would say, I would say at first you... You are definitely left to your own devices to realize what's happening, um, but of course, as it goes on, it becomes very, very clear. Right, which I had already skipped. I was like, "Oh, I have no idea what the heck this is." Oh, the next one's another. Oh, who the heck is this guy? I don't care about any of these people. This isn't making sense. <laughs> Let's skip ahead until I see Perrin's name again, or at least until Rand oh, comes my out. Gosh. I think it was when Rand comes out and he was like, "Did I just see the boar being drilled?" I was like, <gasps> "Wait, rewind." Yeah. yeah. So. Wow. Okay. Wow. Wow. So wow. I wow. Just wow, drop wow, that wow. bombshell on the Inking Out Loud podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Where do we go from Skipping there, boys? Skipping the Roydian vision sequences. Tight. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that may be one of the heftiest sins I have ever committed. Oh my gosh. Anyway. 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 Uh, sticking to the Roydian sequence, though, on a different <laughs> bent. I want to talk about how brilliantly friggin' written this was. They're so good! They're so good, I didn't like, realize the, what I was missing. This is, and I I feel like this is not a particularly controversial statement, probably the best piece of writing Robert Jordan ever did. This whole sequence is brilliant on every level, from the the word-by-word choices... His his syntax, his pacing in it, his use of 
the the staccato points of view going back in time, what it means for the history of the world, what it means for Rand's character. I mean, on every level, this two chapter sequence is just dynamite. Agreed. Like, yep. I, uh, <laughs> there, there's only one sequence in this whole series that I would say rivals it in terms of like writing chops for, Can for I just guess? like proving uh go for it. Do Mize Wells? No. Hmm. The 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 the, the Blade Bastard duel with Turok. No. Ooh. It is a three chapter sequence in the Path of Daggers. Oh wait for some Spoilers. insane oh. reason nobody remembers. I'm not spoiling anything about no, what I'm happens, just saying that I almost spoiled something. Sorry, go ahead. It is a three-chapter sequence in the Path of Daggers. The three chapters are called uh, Gathering Clouds, Fog of War, Storm of Battle, yep. okay. and A Time for Iron. I know exactly what you're talking about. Like, th- that's that's all I'm going to say. Like, that is the only sequence in the whole series that I think Robert Jordan wrote anything that, that can compete with the quality of what he created oh, wait, no. in... In these two chapters in the Shadow Rising. What am I saying? The end of the Dragon Reborn. How is that not at your top? No, no, no. No, No? not even. That's not even like top five. No. Uh, (laughs) These two chapters are so well constructed, so tightly woven. the The word choice is beautiful. I mean, his descriptions in the Age of Legends are are not only something readers at this point would salivate over you know but but he paints such a vivid picture of the decline of the age of legends you know when you have these images of the broken down um uh you know technology and and the oh what are they called the jump cars or something like that the show wings and the joke cars yeah joke cars yeah oh wow that's a that's a failing on my part that i couldn't remember that damn Um, that's uh, but but you know and then like this this scene with the Council of Aes Sedai around a table with Kalendor and oh, the dragon oh, banner wrapped chill. around it discussing you know and and the rumors coming in about the men going mad and the ground is shaking and I mean it is intense it is incredible I I don't have enough glowing adjectives to ascribe to this sequence even so the green man even learning the green man's name yeah someshta yeah yeah and uh, seeing him it's... in the age of legends he already had the furrowed the burned scar on his face and he was already beginning yes. to have memory problems three thousand years ago yeah that's obviously and, incredible and and an important point to to at least bring up here we have at least the origin explained of why the Tinkers are, why the Tuatha An are the way they are, where their legend of the song came from. You know, yeah. we we have we have so much information. We have so many answers in this sequence. It, it really ticks all the boxes. And, and I won't. Oh, sorry, and Jared, go for I, it. I, 
I would just say I think some of those scenes that you get can just stand on their own. Like I'm thinking of when the Aiel go down to save like their sisters that are that were taken yeah. captive in the camp, and it's like the first time mm-hmm. that they pick up weapons, and then they're disowned by the other mm-hmm. Aiel. I mean, I think that can stand on its own. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 there are so many powerful moments in it. It it's just. I I love the Wheel of Time, obviously, but I won't ever get like as loud and as emphatic about this series other than this sequence, basically. I mean, it, it's... This book is my favorite in the series, and this sequence is my favorite in the book, and as a writer, you know growing up reading and rereading this over and over and over again. Sometimes it's hard for me when I sit down in front of my keyboard and I'm like stuck on a scene. And I think I'm like, like I want to write great books. I want to write fun stories that people are going to love and people are going to fall in love with. And then I think back to stuff that Robert Jordan wrote and and things like this sequence. I'm like, man, I suck. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. Well, yeah, how can it, you compare it, yourself to this of all things, though? Well, yeah, you, you have to you have to work past that mentality at points. But but that is as as far as being a reader goes. These are the kinds of things that inspired me to become a writer in the first place. You know, like it it was reading books like The Shadow Rising and Lord of Chaos and The Great Hunt. You know, as a as a twelve thirteen year old that. You know, it, it was the Wheel of Time that inspired me to choose writing as my career. You know, I I read these books at the end of sixth grade, and by the end of seventh grade, I'd written my first novel. It was absolute garbage, and it was a completely derivative Wheel of Time knockoff. But hey, <laughs> I, I wrote a book because of the Wheel of Time, and Hell I've yeah. gone on for a career with this. You know, like, and it is it is a testament to how great a writer Robert Jordan was that he could move a 12 year old boy who never ever would have thought about writing books to in the span of a year saying, this is going to be my career. Heck yeah. I think that's especially true in our day and age as well, where we're dominated by visual media. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, when, when I'm surrounded as a 12-year-old with, like, uh, and Rob, you'll, you'll appreciate this, it, it was kind of the early 2000s were, uh, like, the transformation of the video game in- industry oh, with yeah. with uh, live online multiplayer. Totally. I could have been, <laughs> in 2002, 2003, you know, like, I could have been playing Halo 2 multiplayer, Rather than writing my book. Well, Halo 3 wasn't released until 2004. November 9th. Halo. Th- actually. He said Halo 2. He did say Halo 2. Ha- no, Halo 3 was. Two, yeah, Halo 2. Halo 2 Sorry, was, did I say Halo, Halo 3? 2 was 2004. But, yeah. like, Halo 1, though, I mean, I was I was playing, like, LAN parties there was and no stuff online like that. Multiplayer. You know? yeah, true. yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but yeah. still, like, Xbox Live <laughs> I'll was come out in the early 2000s. That. And, and, you know, it, it was. Uh, it, it was a, a revolutionary time in video games, and I. I loved this series so much that I never became a gamer because of that. Damn! Like, 
Damn. Shoot, man, I played a lot of Halo 2. <laughs> I was going to say, like, I'll come yeah. out and say that, though I was lost, I was staying up until 4 in the morning almost every single night reading The Wheel <laughs> of Time. Um, <laughs> I mean, that was that was interspersed with nights staying up till 4 a.m. playing Halo 2, playing Halo 3. I mean, I was doing both. Well, and... and- I mean, this particular book, Shadow Rising, I was getting in trouble at the dinner table for wow. bringing it to the dinner table. <laughs> wow. Nice. Yeah. I, it, I've it, heard it, of it, parents it, like, don't bring your phone to the table. Don't bring your tablet to the table. Don't bring your epic know, fantasy book you to the that, table. Right? Come on now, Jared. Don't. don't little, little 14-year-old Jared, don't bring your thousand-page novel to the table. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to tip yeah, it over. It's, I know. Terrible. Yeah, yeah. I mean... It, it, this is one of the reasons why I get so worked up when I see people online, you know, on Reddit fantasy or, or you know, some of the Facebook forums or whatever, like bashing on Robert Jordan, because for one thing, lots of them bashing on Robert Jordan never read this sequence. They they maybe read like five chapters of Eye of the World and decided it was a Lord of the Rings clone and and it was a waste of their time or they choose to forget just how good Robert Jordan can be you know pe- there are lots of people who would read through what what is popularly known as like the plod or or the slog and give it up and i can understand why some people might do that uh, I, I think less so nowadays because you don't have to wait years between the books. Uh, I think that that uh, slowdown that a lot of people will complain about is pretty overblown when you don't have to wait two years between books at that point. But I think the people who gave up there forget about just what magic Robert Jordan was able to create when he was at the top of his game in The Shadow Rising. I'm the Dragon Reborn. So I have an interesting counter argument here, and it's it's not to say that I take this position. I'm just trying to play devil's advocate here because <laughs> I, I have enjoyed these books. But for instance, you you read how many pages per hour, Drew? Oh. I, these days I read. I mean, if I'm reading The Wheel of Time, I read about 110, 120 pages an hour. Okay, so this is uh, where my argument stems from, is I would say the average reader has to put about twice as many hours into the book that you do, and so in a sense it does feel more like a plod or a slog to that reader. I I mean, I I think about, (laughs) like, some of the, like, distance races that I run and being... You know, one of the faster people in the field, I, I don't have to spend as much time on the course. And so, like, for instance, I got to hand it to anyone who runs a six-hour marathon because they're suffering for six hours. I've <laughs> never done that. I can't do that. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, and so for any of our listeners uh, here, Peter is a long-distance runner. The guy just, you ran the Boston Marathon yeah, this yeah. year. Yeah, like, he's ridiculous. Uh <laughs> I'm the opposite um, of that. But I, tr- I started that, running a, last week. I ran to the end of the street and collapsed. <laughs> <laughs> that's a actually a really interesting point to bring up because I've never considered like narrative pace 
in conjunction with reading speed before. Mm-hmm. Ah. And, and, yeah, you may have a good point there. Like, hmm. Maybe this I, is I, why I don't, I don't have a, a rebuttal no or anything. Friggin' yeah. patience for the Roydeon sequence because it took him <laughs> four hours to get through. Oh, come on. It did not take you four hours to read two chapters. I don't know. I'm just trying to go back to 15 <laughs> but, years but... ago when I read this for the first time, thinking about how long relatively it felt like. Remember in The Great Hunt, Rand was sitting there on the, at the end of the ferry thinking, oh, God, this is taking forever. Meanwhile, it was like literally instantaneously, right? Like, when you're young, things seem to take way longer than they do when you're older. Hmm. On to- interesting. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting... Sorry, go ahead. That's an interesting combination of factors there. A, your your reading speed hasn't, you know, have fully developed at that point. And then B, things seem to take longer. Like, when you're that age, 15 minutes seems different than it does now. So That's 15 minutes of Halo 2 I could have been and playing. The, and the, Yeah, and, and, the, and then C, <laughs> like, I'd say when you're younger, you just have less patience in general. So, I would say that puts your confession in context <laughs> yeah i appreciate that thank you for giving my confession context i don't feel quite as bad yeah. though no i still do let's and, and like y- y- you should you i should. should this is an amazing <laughs> sequence that i missed out on i'm judging <laughs> yeah. a lot and right like now. even as somebody who confessed that the pace was slower hearing that he- hearing you okay. say that i'm like oh come on at least slog through it but i was in my late 20s when i read it so it's like yeah it's not a, it's still not a comparison <laughs> yeah Oh so now that we've so... done about 35 <laughs> yeah. minutes on the Roydeon sequence, we haven't really gotten into our character discussions yet. <laughs> we should probably get around to doing that. I'm thinking we should start. Anything else? Uh, final thoughts about the Roydeon sequence out of the way before we get into our characters. Um, not with the Taragreal sequence. Okay. Let's move on. Okay, so... And, and I want to say, let's let's go straight to Elaine and Nynaeve. Ooh, ooh, ooh Okay. Odd choice. Let's hear why. Because, uh, well, I think we'll spend less time on them. We'll get them because ah, exactly. they only have a couple of chapters. You know, uh, in this sequence, I think there are what two, three chapters, um, like getting to Tanchico and settling in and getting drunk and uh, <laughs> getting <you know>. drunk. <laughs> uh, I honestly like. I love them both in, in this book, like from beginning to end. They're, uh, especially Elaine, I mean, her experiences in The Shadow Rising are like every teenager's high school. <laughs> it's it's your, your first crush working up the nerve to uh, make a move. It's your first encounter with alcohol. You know, like it's, it's stuff like these, these formative social experiences and i just love it like i i like elaine a lot more than apparently many many people do i know she like routinely shows up on like most hated wheel of time character lists i think that's insane uh i i you know there there's um there's a phenomenon about her that we'll discuss later in the series but (laughs) at least in in these early books uh she's she's delightful i i love her like yeah <laughs> I, I don't know i don't know uh, peter what do you think about elaine um well you mentioned elaine and nynaeve and i started thinking about nynaeve can i talk about nynaeve? go do nynaeve uh 
because I, I haven't had a chance to bring this up yet, but to this point, Nynaeve is my favorite character in the series. Nice! And, Interesting. You know, in, in some ways, I, I find myself, like, sort of having the hots for her, like Rob has the hots for Moraine, where she's, you know, she's for got 90. kind of that... <laughs> A little bit. She's got that badass attitude where she does you know, have a badass just, attitude. Yeah, yeah. She she takes care of things that need to be taken care of, and you know she's she's very smart and capable and looks after her kin from the two rivers. And okay, this is the first point that endeared me to Nynaeve. Is we're, we're okay. We're going back to the first book here. Okay. Is right at the beginning uh, around Beltine. You know she. She she busts a weather forecast and <laughs> like seasonal forecasting is a part of what I do. Oh, of course. And so and, and she's like trying to explain, no, this spring is weird. <laughs> and and so I like I totally identified with that. Oh my god, <laughs> wow. oh my god that's amazing. But well, e- like I've... even hmm. Now as far as Nynaeve is concerned, I'm not unattracted to Nynaeve. She's she's all right, you know. She, I definitely <laughs> empathize with her a lot more now that I am her age, a yeah. lot more than I did when I was fifteen years old or fourteen or thirteen. One of your years, okay. But you know, she in the first few books she just struck me as so goddamn grumpy. <laughs> she's grumpy. She's always in a bad mood. I just yeah, because she her, has like, to what deal. What is your stuff. problem? Lighten the fuck up. Life is awesome. <laughs> I don't know. Is it awesome? Do you really think her life has been awesome since leaving the two rivers? Yeah. I don't know. It seems pretty stressful <laughs> That's a good point. It's a good point. I'll give you that. But, I mean, I don't oh. know. It's just... Nynaeve... Well, well she... so... Sorry, go ahead. Well, so talking about Nynaeve and Elaine in this sequence, I love the way Nynaeve is just so understanding and caring for Elaine when she gets drunk. She's like, no, no, here, let's get you some water. Understanding. And and let's get you some water, and then BAM! Like, (laughs) we're gonna sober you up. (laughs) Head dunk. Uh, uh, Okay, I have a question. Um, She's 27. Yeah, she's 25 right right now. Well, maybe 26. I don't think we get a strict birth date. So she's like late, old 25, young 26 at this point. Peter, what were you saying? Yeah. Um, yeah, I just had a question. So at, at this point, they've they've reached Tanchiko, or are they... yes, yeah, yeah. So they, they've they've taken the the journey on the, what is it, the wave dancer? The wave dancer, yeah. Yeah, I, the, the, like while we're talking about mm. Elaine, I I just liked I liked her reaction to the topless women. On, oh yeah, <laughs> on the wave dancer. Yeah, she, Sorry, she the walks, reaction to like, what you guys cut out there. The topless women. Oh, like on the yeah, wave dancer, no, yeah. <laughs> yeah, she walks upstairs. She's just like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> well, honestly, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because actually the wave dancer, that, that first chapter was in uh, the first section and we didn't talk about that at all last episode. Um, it, it, there, there are some interesting things with the Seafolk because this is our first you know, introduction to the Seafolk culture is, yeah. in this book. And, uh, you know, we see the wave finders, wind finders. Wow. Wave dancer, wind fighter, whatever. <laughs> choose, choose, choose a, a C word and then like a, a, you know, a cool action noun and, and you can create like a sea folk title. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but we find out that there's yet another, uh, yeah. <laughs> 
a tall fighter. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but we find out that the the sea folk have another uh, society of channeling women. You know, we 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 know now the the Aiel have the wise ones, mm-hmm. right? And now the sea folk have the wind finders. And these are our first clues that the Aes Sedai are not homogenous. You know, they they have their own insular society and their own opinion of themselves and, and the effect they have on the world. But we're finding out now they, A, have much less of an impact on the greater world than they think they do. And B, there are many, many, many more channelers out there than we thought. You know, we have kind of a, you know, an impression that there are small numbers of channelers. You know, there are what, only like a thousand, little over a thousand eyes to die in the tower. Oh, oh and, at this uh, point, and, and Varen we, has already yeah. speculated that they can yeah, be yeah. calling it out they of only mankind. Have, yeah. They only have 40 uh, novices and like 10 or 12 accepted. You know, it's the Aes Sedai are dwindling, and then we find out that there are these burgeoning societies of channelers outside of them. And this is a big part of why The Shadow Rising is such an important book, narratively speaking, in this series, because it expands the world mm-hmm. in such a dramatic way. And the sea, the sea folk, as as Peter brought up here, are, like, are a big part of that. And it's putting our main characters in situations where they're way out of their elements and don't even know like like the cultures are so foreign they can't even function in them right like yeah yeah i i loved seeing the way elaine <laughs> I like, reacted i like using the the phrase fish out of water once again for the sea folk but i, I risk sounding a little uh is that a little <laughs> too on point a little yeah. too on point yeah <laughs> oh I don't know. I think oh, Tom and Julian have pretty good those reactions. Two we get we get to see. Oh, yeah. We get like a, a more natural kind of reader's opinion kind of manifested in these two. Like, mm-hmm. is everything really as normal as it's as everyone's acting? Like, this is kind of up. I I really enjoy the fact that Elaine, Nynaeve, and Egwene had Tom and Julian there to kind of I don't I want, like I don't want to Balance keep them safe, but to kind of ground them. To balance things yeah. out, yes, exactly, yeah. So, so actually, sure. that's a point uh, I'm going to get a little abstract here. Sure. Um, I think it's really interesting how we get three distinct plot lines in this book and three groups of characters moving along those plot lines. Robert Jordan gave us very balanced groups gender-wise. We yeah, have yeah, he did. Nynaeve, Elaine, Tom, Julian. We have Perrin, Loyal, Gaul, Bane, Chiad, Fail. We have Matt, Rand, Lan, Egwene, Moraine. You know, like no. it, there is Avienda. And well, yeah, yeah. and Avienda. Although we don't, yeah. we don't get a ton Wise of Avienda in this, but but yeah, it, it there's a, a really a really nice balance, and I think this is something we should keep an eye on going forward across this series, since obviously gender dynamics are such an important point and theme. In the wheel of time, but but anyway, let's get back to characters. Let's uh, yes, we, we went kind of far afield there. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, partially my fault. Yay! This is what happens when we record two episodes in a day, and we're already like a full episode. Hey, we're, we're playing it by ear. This is a podcast, <laughs> not a lecture. Talk yeah, about whatever exactly. takes your fancy. Uh, let's let's go back to Nynaeve, though. Okay, I, back I, to I love that Peter is a big Nynaeve fan. So. <laughs> 
Jared, I want to hear your opinion on Nynaeve and the Shadow Rising. Um, I don't know. I don't have much to say on her. I, I like her in it, I guess. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. That's some <laughs> insightful, hard-hitting comeback. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I don't know if she's... A whole whole lot to I have go nothing on to at add. this point at least i don't yeah i don't know that she's quite as focal here there are forthcoming events with yeah. her that i okay. like very okay much. i don't know i just i just really liked the way she acts upon their arrival in tanchico and her ability to sort of read and take command of a situation i i think that's one of nynaeve's most admirable attributes She's always taking command of situations, like when, yeah. you know, Egwene and Elaine get captured. I was just going to bring that up. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. In the Great I mean, Hunt. It's, and, and back in, yeah, yeah, we'll, yeah, yeah. We've, we've talked about that in the past, but, but it, it, that's Nynaeve's personality, right? Like, she, she was raised knowing, you know, as, a, as an adopted, uh, adopted daughter of Doral Baron, who is the wisdom, you know, she knew she was being groomed to be in a leadership role in Iman's field. And so when she moves into the larger world, of course, she's going to uh, be willing and able to assess situations and find out how to be a leader in those. She's kind of like an intimidatingly smart, talented older sister, but thank God she's there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I agree with that. Now, on, um, um, with uh, on the subject of their arrival in Tanchiko, I want to ask your opinions, all three of you, on uh, something that we I've noticed happening throughout the narrative, recurringly, and we get another example of it in this book. What is with this pattern of each successive book moving some or all of our main characters into increasingly dangerous cities? Take the Eye of the World, for example. They, they were in they, our, our first really big city, not Bearlon, was Camlin. And the tone was like, okay. there are so many people in this city. A dark friend could be anywhere. Now, you go forward with the Great Hunt. We spent some time in Kyrian. And we found out that dark friends even infested the ranks of nobility with Lord Barthanus, right? Mm -hmm. The Dragon Reborn. We moved to Tyr. Where the raping and murder of peasants is so ingrained, sorry, ingrained, ingrained as normal in the minds of the aristocracy, that they're just they're, they're simply incredulous at the idea of it being made illegal. And now we're going in the Shadow Rising with Nynaeve and Elaine to Tanchico, where and when Lan finds out, Al Lan Mandragoran of all people, absolutely loses his. Sh when he finds out where they're going. And to use his exact words, he says, Tanchiko <laughs> is no place for anyone except a full Aes Sedai with a warder to watch her back. He even offers to break his bond with Moiraine just to try and keep them alive during their stay in Tanchiko. I, I, are, are there no civilized cities in this entire world? I mean, to me, you missed a big city there too in uh, Falm or Falme. Falme. Yeah. Well... I mean, Falme had a different kind of uh, dynamic. Yeah. Falme was still a small town, all things considered. It wasn't yeah, a big city. Yeah. Okay. But but I, I get where you're going, and I will say this is like a an authorial choice where Robert Jordan, like, you know, you, you got to keep upping the stakes, right? You know, yeah. you, you can't just, like, be like, oh, we went to this city in this dangerous city in the first book. Oh, but in the fourth book, we're gonna go to this like pleasant. But where this, where is this, he? This very orderly. Where is he planning yeah. on going from 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 this point? Vacation. Like, oh, in book five, we're gonna go to a city where you step in it, you die. 
Well, yeah, I, I see where you're Lugard? coming. From. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I see where you're coming from, though. Where <laughs> it's, where it's like, okay, no five. Where are five? the peaceful places in yeah. this world? Like, where would you want to live if you actually lived in this world? Yeah. I would want to live in either Tarvalon or Camelin. I discussed but... this, believe it or not, I actually asked this exact same question in uh, The Dragon Reborn Part 2, I think. And I said I would, I kind of wanted to live in Tyr until I actually took a, cl a, a closer look at the aristocracy. And I was like, yeah. let's say Camelin. I don't want to live anywhere where the streets are like mud up to that's your just in the That's just in the Mala. That's not in the rest of Tyr. Come on Yeah, now. Yeah, you think you're going to be living in the uh, upscale corner? Hell yeah, I got knowledge of the future, bitch. I can, I'm a prophet, I'm a prophet. <laughs> Oh, rich man. I'll find Randall Thor and tell him what's up. Sorry. Oh I, I've been drinking a little bit, obviously. This well, IPA well, no, that I brought here's is... Here's a, a awesome. question for our listeners. Uh, let us know on our Facebook page uh, when we post this episode. Let us know which major Wheel of Time city would you prefer to live in? Because apparently we have some very different opinions on, on here. <laughs> we have... I'd prefer a cabin in the woods in the Mountains of Mist. With the wolves. Uh, oh, the haunted the Mountains of Mist, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. not haunted. Come <laughs> on now. That just keeps everybody else away. Make sure that you don't have any <laughs> annoying people encroaching on your turn. Yeah, yeah honestly, probably one. the whole legends about the Mountains of Mist being haunted are probably like some dude who got fed up with obnoxious Two Rivers people <laughs> and moved up there and <laughs> started legends. I don't know, man. Minethrin sounded like they had it going on. It was a party. Yeah, everybody there. got, everybody got bail fired. There. Yeah, but it was the greatest city in the world when it. Oh, bail fired. Yeah, didn't Eldrin use bail fire? No. Didn't she bail fire the the dreadlords? She she drew so much of the power. Oh, oh, uh, bail oh, firing you, all of them. You that... mean the city itself? Like literally the stones of the city. It was just like a giant flame. Wasn't that just like a giant flame. Sheet of glass. That wasn't I'd, I'd have actually bail. I'd have to double check this, but I believe. No. I believe she balefired the uh, the Dreadlords and Murdral when she uh, went nuts. Well, yeah, but the like, city itself was, like, was turned into like, a sheet of glass, though. It was casting balefire from yeah. the mountains down into the foothills and the lowlands. Like, Just out of curiosity, nuts. Peter, do you remember the story now? Like, do you remember uh, where exactly yeah. it was? This was this was revealed. I just want to nope. I want to gauge uh, to see where you're at in retention. <laughs> Moiraine tells the story of the fall of Manethrin. I well no no <laughs> I just, I'm just curious. No, like, this I, is I, my I, only I opportunity remember, to ask somebody. I remember Moiraine telling about the. I remember Moiraine telling about the fall of Manethrin, but I I didn't necessarily remember all the details. Okay, because like good because I was here. wondering I was like is Peter okay good got you yeah so yeah so okay. you remember the fall of Manethrin? that's exactly what we're talking about that like Eldrin the the queen when she felt Amon die. She, that was uh, Eye of the World, right? That she talked yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, that was the very right beginning, the beginning Eye of the World. Yeah. She uh, just went shit crazy. Cannot wait to see them make that in the TV oh, show. Yeah. Oh, that whole story <laughs> has to be... They have to have a whole few million dollars put aside just oh. for that sequence. They have to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, oh. that episode's gonna have such a crazy budget just because just mm. of that. The rest yeah. of it, they're gonna pay like, like $50,000... And then the whole rest of the budget is, like, doing some insane, like... <laughs> yeah. Anyway. story. I don't know. Where the heck but, were we? But, yeah. Tonshinko, Dangerous Cities. That is a great question. Nineave, yeah. Characters? <laughs> Nineave? Okay. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, my earlier point with Nineave is, like, about her, her leadership abilities and her... Uh, her inclination to adjust to new situations in a way that gives her at least a modicum of control 
for her immediate surroundings. She's she's really good at analyzing what's going on, recognizing these are the the issues that could go off the rails. This is how I'll mitigate them. This is how I will take control of things when they go off the rails, as we see her uh, prevent Elaine from getting presumably raped in Tanchico as this uh, predatory server way, way overpours her wine. Um, yeah, I, I, I like Nynaeve in, in these chapters in uh, the first two-thirds of The Shadow Rising. And before we totally move on from Nynaeve and, and Elaine... Um... With that scene where Elaine does get get drunk, I mean the the scene between her and and Tom, I thought was, um, yeah, you yeah, know, one of the more important points in in the book where, you know, on on some on some level she recognizes her connection to Tom. Yeah, yeah. I, I yeah. did like that. Uh, I remember back to my first reading, um, really putting together the pieces. And, and realizing just what a role Tom had with more gays. Yeah. Uh, that, I, I enjoyed that a lot. What do you think, Jared? I enjoyed... Uh, I enjoy seeing him as more of a father figure to Elaine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think it explains... I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I enjoy him as a father figure. And I, I think it. <laughs> okay. That 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 little sign of affection, that tug on the mustache, that she does just unconsciously, <laughs> is is what really kind yeah. of makes it human. It makes it believable. It makes it poignant. Um, Elaine, kind of wondering about that and not understanding what it is inside of her that, for some reason, like finds uh, just. Just safety in, in this man that is that is Tom Marilyn and why she just she she or seems to recognize him or she can't point out why, you know it was uh, it was it was really cool it was, it was it was that dramatic irony that thing where the reader knows what's happening, the character doesn't, and it's fun to watch. So yeah. Go ahead. And I guess like maybe think about one thing I was thinking about was how hard things might be for Tom right now. Actually, oh my god. He was just sent off by Moraine through some very expert manipulation on her part, dredging up his past. And now he, and he's sent off with Elaine, bringing up this interesting past with her mother. Yeah. It's got to be hard That's a good for point. I haven't considered that. Poor guy. Wow. Tom Marilyn, such oh. a, uh, th- that that could be another reason why Tom Marilyn has found such praise in the Wheel of Time community for like people's favorite characters. I mean, he cons- apparently he consistently appears at the top of these lists. Like what, like your favorite character? You know, I I I mean, I like Tom Marilyn. I don't see him as one of my favorite, but it's moments like this where I really, yeah, he kind of breaks my heart. That old fool. All right. All right. So uh, yeah, we. Well, Nynaeve and Elaine were supposed to be short, but that certainly didn't happen. Uh, <laughs> but let's move into Perrin, though, because yes! I feel like Perrin's a uh, yeah, pretty pretty significant portion of this section. Yeah, especially in this book, of all books. You know, he a lot of big, like I said earlier, big things happening to and for Perrin at this point. He represents the greater part of the narrative, or the pickup in narrative pacing in The Shadow Rising. He has his first encounter with Slayer. 
You know, and, and not to spoil anything in the future, I'm just going to say this is a big deal. Um, yeah. Perrin learns that his family is dead. And I, I, I just want to say, like, first off, wow, I don't recall this scene ever hitting me so hard. Was I, like, an emotionless robot as a teenager? I don't know. I mean, it, it was a tough thing to return to. I, I remember going into it and thinking, oh, this is it. And it's, it's, it's so hard to see Perrin like this. His mantra of, I came as fast as I could. You know, I, I, I couldn't come any faster. You know, it was just, ouch. And especially, of course, the way yeah. they all died. You know, Perrin thinks they were eaten by Trollocs. And or the only silver lining in this scenario is that he's actually spared the horror of the truth of what really happened to them. Right, right. So, yeah. Yeah, it, I, I'm so with you there. I, I, the first time I read this and in my, like, original impression of it, like, I didn't have much of a reaction to this scene. I was just like, okay, all right. And part of that was because we never saw Perrin's family before. Mm-hmm. You know, Only like in the, the Raven's prologue. Yeah, exactly. And and that was nine pages long, and so we saw him for all of, like, a paragraph. And so it didn't hit home with all of the impact that it might have uh, back when I was younger and reading this for the first time. But in my newer reads of this, you know, uh, back in like 2012, 2013, when I was rereading Preparing for a Memory of Light and then did a reread after a Memory of Light and now uh, doing it for the podcast here, the idea, like, the idea of losing your whole family like that, whether or not I know the characters in it, like, I empathize more. It's more this idea of, like, how would I react? Right? If that happened to me. Yeah. And, and, and it, it really, yeah, no, I really hit me this I, time around. I tell you as, as an oldest sibling, that is a terrifying thought. Like, my God, I feel so bad for Perrin at this point. What about you guys? Jared, Peter, Perrin at this point. I mean, Perrin is the character that I most identify with and having lost family of my own in the past, this scene Mm-hmm. certainly hit me the hardest, I would say, out of the book. Yeah. Peter? Yeah, I mean, I I can't really follow that reaction so closely. Um, I, I agree with Drew that it would have, you know, maybe hit home harder for me if uh, we'd gotten to know parents' family but this kind of goes along with, Rob, what you were saying in the last um, podcast that, you know, in, in many ways, Perrin is just, like, such a tortured individual. And this is, th- this scene really, really like, personifies it in ways that most scenes do not. But just losing, losing your family on top of everything else. Yeah. yeah especially unexpectedly. Gosh. I mean, his entire his entire focus up to this point was getting back and saving them. And what really drove that home to me that that raw human instinctual reaction, that thing that that brought that empathy out of me more than anything else, was his kind of willful denial. Or like when he finds out he when, when first I think it was Bran Alvere told him your family's gone, and he says, "What do you mean gone? You, the, the farm's gone already? Like they've picked up and moved? Where are they?" 
you know? Like, like, it, it is just so goddamn heartbreaking to read, you know? And it, and it hit me so much harder this time than it did any other time. But, yeah, now that, uh, now that, that the bummer <laughs> is out of the way, uh, I do have some more... Sorry, go ahead. Sure. Yes. 100%. He's there for him. No, Fayil there is it that that scene right there is the reason why I didn't totally give up on Fayil. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah, that's that's a really formative moment for Perrin and for his motivation around taking control of things in mm -hmm. the two rivers. And I think that's important going forward in this book because we see him uh, first start manifesting his own Taviran uh, mm -hmm. impacts on the world. Yeah. Which is interesting to think about because Perrin is the last of the three of them to, uh, to really start having that Taviran-ness warp things around him. And now we see the Iman's Fielders and the Two Rivers residents as a whole start gravitating toward him and following him whether he wants them to or not. And, and you know, we see this as he's heading north to uh, Watch Hill to see what's going on with the White Cloaks there and... Uh, you know, he stops at the farmstead, and and we have this, this showdown between Lord Luke and and Perrin, you know, where, where uh, we find out what kind of... Hmm... What kind of a person Lord Luke is. <laughs> this, yeah. this just, like, arrogant bastard. You know, like, th this guy's such a just... <laughs> Maybe what would be in your head with a like typical nobleman? Oh, even even more than than your typical. Like he's such a clown. I don't know. I <laughs> like like I I loved seeing Perrin like dismantle the supposed logic behind Luke's instructions and advice to the people. Where they're like, oh, oh yeah, this is a terrible idea to be like congregating in little islands out here. Of course, we should all gather together for security, you know. And it's it's really satisfying. I mean, it's it's fun to see the the Taviran work as it does, and uh, even when parents not intending to. To give advice, his arguments just in the moment end up coming across as advice, yeah. and people start taking it, and he naturally finds himself in a leadership role in the Two Rivers. I think that's a, a great part of this book is seeing how Perrin smoothly, naturally, um, not intentionally or with any aspirations, becomes a leader and a good leader. Yeah. yeah, you you took some of the words right out of my mouth there, and I like I want to pick up on that a little bit. But I love what happens with with Perrin here, uh, with with how he develops his leadership role because it it's just born out of passion. Like Perrin is such a passionate guy, and it's a, it's a genuine passion. It's and 
that's what causes people to gravitate to him. It's not for power, it's not for political gain, and so you see that contrasted against Lord Luke. Yeah. He's and, all about the adulation. Yeah. He's like, I want you to, to think I'm a superhero, look at how cool I am, I killed a Murdral, you know, like... Exactly. Oh. Yeah. yeah, no. That, that's that's the thing I, I loved about Perrin in, like, in relation, or I should say in contrast to Lord Luke. He sees himself as being realistic and just pragmatic, which is what we... The repeating theme so far in this book is that he, exactly what heroes do. They don't, they're not, they don't see themselves as heroes. They see themselves as doing what, what they need to do. And that's what Perrin does. That's all he does. He, he just says to them, he, he points out their kind of flaws in their logic. Why having? Why do you have boys on the roof watching for Trollocs? By the time they see yeah. them, it's too late. Why do? You, why are you defying? Like, sorry, defying the white cloaks at the door. It's like all these things are foolish. Get to Emmons Field. Why are you trying to save your farm when you can't save your kids? Like he just sees himself as saying what needs to be said, and that I think is a big part of why the two river, uh, the two rivers, the two rivers stubbornness kind of responds so well to that. Plus, is obviously yeah. his Taviran nature is his, his pull on the yeah. pattern. Yeah, it's it's more a uh, a genuine sense of um, caring for those around him, yeah. rather than the the natural arrogance that Lord Luke just exudes. I mean, th this guy is all about himself. Yeah. You know, it's Perrin cares about everyone other than himself. Sometimes yeah. to a fault, as we discussed earlier. You know, like like he's so willing and ready for self sacrifice, it, it, and the idea of self-sacrifice has never in a million years yeah. entered Lord Luke's head. Yeah. Yeah. And I just want to point so, out... Sorry, go ahead, Jared. I really like... I was going to say, I really like how you get the dynamic with yeah. Tam and mm -hmm. Abel accepting him as a leader, and especially Tam, given that he, you know, this is a guy who is campaigning in an army, and understands what leadership Heck should look yes. like. That was a huge part of what, of what I think led Perrin to being comfortable with a, anything resembling a leadership position when Tam and Abel are the ones that go along with it as if it's just kind of like a natural thing. Um, and I do just want to point out just how quaint it was um, how when Perrin first met Lord Luke he specifically thought to himself he despised him on sight. Yeah. I loved that line. Yeah. I didn't quite realize just how quaint that was until now. I was like, ah, heck yes. Well, and that I'm says a lot, too, because Perrin is yeah. not the kind of person to make immediate decisions, immediate impressions. Matt, sure, he, he despises plenty of people on site. But with <laughs> Perrin, like, you know, yeah. like, he's usually the kind of person who's going to maybe, yeah, take a step back and... and get a little more information before uh, coming to a judgment. But he's like, no. No. Not this dude. Yeah. Uh, since we're still on Perrin, I, I just want to really quickly get my bitching about Fayil out of the way, because you, you know it's going to happen when I'm talking sure. about Perrin. Sure. But this is going to be quicker well, this right. time, I promise. <laughs> I just want to point I, I just want to point out one single thing that Fayil did here that, I, that pissed me off. I wrote down, really, Fayil? Perrin literally just found out that his family is dead. What a perfect opportune time to test his jealousy by openly flirting with other men. I'm talking about Will Alcine and Lord Luke, of course. Yeah. Like, yeah. 
Like, how long before this did he find out that his family was supposedly eaten by Trollocs? Like, a day, two days before this? And she's like, I'm gonna test. I'm just gonna start flirting with other men and see if I can make him jealous. What a nasty, fucking cold-hearted, immature little bitch! Sorry, I just I just had to get that out of the way. That's the end of everything I wanted I, to say with Fayul. I can't, I can't immature. really argue with that one. I'm, yeah. I'm not gonna cut her any slack on that. Okay. Good. So, and so I'll, Drew... Sorry, go ahead. Drew, you brought up an interesting point or at one at one point that I don't think was on last episode or, or this episode of, like, Perrin versus the other Taviran boys. When do you think he lost his virginity? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh. We did talk about this on the Lost uh, episode. Yeah, we we talked about it on the uh, the Lost episode. Yeah. <laughs> Is that what um, we're going to refer to it from here on out? I like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So for for everybody listening now, we've actually recorded part one of the Shadow Rising twice, uh, because mm-hmm. the first time we recorded it, a mic was not turned on, and we lost about an hour and forty five minutes of content. Yeah, we did. So <laughs> it's part of the industry. Uh, you have to know that and accept that walking in. You will lose I, that someday. I really, I want to think Perrin lost his virginity on his wedding night. Um, but but I think you guys have a really good point about the fact that he was sharing rooms. I was going to say he was sharing Tyr. rooms with Fael in the Stone of Tear, and with, yeah. the, with the two rivers, prudence. I suppose yeah, I would like, say. Like, like, if there's anybody in this series who could share rooms for, like, a month or two with a girl and not have sex with her, I it's mean, Perrin. Rand does it in this book. Avienda well, is that's, sleeping that's beside him the different. whole time. <laughs> that's very... Yeah, she's, like, not... on her own pallet over there. Yeah, I guess. For, like, a couple weeks. And they're, they're not in a relationship. I yeah, mean, we can yeah. talk about that more, but... Very I, I, different circumstances. I, I kind of, because reading through for the first time, I sort of played innocent, where um, I, I didn't think it had happened at this point in, in the book, and we, you know, we can talk about what, what uh, you brought up in the third part, but given that Perrin is a romantic, and given that he's passionate, I... I think I've changed my mind that it probably happened between the third and fourth book. Right. That's what I yeah, see. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah. 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 Um, now, now, to balance my bitching about Fael out, I will say, on the flip side, we get to see the start of his bromance with Gaul. I... Oh, hell yeah. I love the relationship between these two. They have such a matching personality to be to just be bros. They're both slow but careful of thought and action. Mm-hmm. They're 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 both bewildered by the the hasty actions and and the drama of everyone else. I'm just I'm so glad that Perrin has gall to get him through all of the bullshit that Fayil and by extension Bane and Chiad are kind of putting him through. Gall is a great wingman. Every and I will say this going forward: everybody needs a gall in their lives, <laughs> right? The the only. As well, yes. try and understand exactly. the sun. The parent. only thing I'll say, like against Gaul, is that like against the guy could, he could be a little more aware about the interest from Bane and Chiad. What are you talking like, about? Like, he, They're just I feel like he approaches. On him the whole time. Well, so he's super into Chiad. Uh, Chiad. Yeah. And and. Uh, 
he like I don't know he has this kind of anti I yield mentality like like he's an I man he knows how first sisters work yeah polygamy like, is a thing in the I yield yeah culture. and and he but he seems so baffled by the fact that he can't approach Chiad without Bane there as well. And I'm like, dude, you grew up in this society. You knew what kind of a, an arrangement you were trying to get into here. Like, come on. Yep. You know, like, like you you can't complain about this. Could you know how it though. works. He just wants Chiad, right? Well, sure, sure. But but the way he acts is, like, in bafflement. He's like, why can't oh, I do true. this? Yeah, why can't... Is... Like, yeah, and, and I'm like, dude, you you're deluding yourself here. You know you either need to choose n- neither of them or both of them because that's the culture you grew up in. Like, yeah, I don't know. So, Yeah, uh, anything else Perrin-related that we want to discuss before we move on? I could go down a wormhole there there and say because it's the culture <laughs> he grew up in, does that make it right? <laughs> we I are mean- not... We are absolutely not touching on moral relativism on this podcast because, and Peter, you haven't gotten here yet, there is an absolute fucking minefield later in this series that I am not touching. Yep. So. <laughs> is it in book seven by chance? Does It, it is in book seven. Matt Coffin, yep. perhaps. It does. Yeah, we are not going Oh, there. I wonder what so. that could be. <laughs> Yeah, we we are not going there. Um, not yet. Uh, but but let's uh, let's I got move FOMO on. FOMO now. <laughs> <laughs> Keep reading. Read and find out. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Hey guys. Hey guys. Quick note that Sweet. we can cut okay. after okay. leave in thirty Perfect. minutes. Perfect. Okay. Um, yeah. So we're. Uh, I feel like we're we're pretty much done with Perrin, right? Yeah. I've pretty much said everything let's, about Perrin. Let's do Eggwee. Oh. Okay. Because I know, Rob, you said you had some uh, uh, things to talk about her. I'm glad you remembered. Well, I really only have one specific thing I wanted to say regarding Egwene um, with her point in this book. And that's, I wanted to say that there was a moment I really actually agreed with Egwene. And this was immediately at the beginning of where um, part two by our arbitrary line starts in chapter 22. Um, sure. This is after Moiraine confronts Rand about his Angreal not being sufficient to the task of transporting them via the portal sure. stone. He says, it worked, Moiraine. That is what is important. And Lan chimes in with, that is what matters. And he nods his head in agreement. Are you guys being stupid? I mean, that was way dangerous. I agree with Egwene. And she just like, men. And I'm sitting here like, hell yes, girl. They're being dumbasses right now. So, that's basically yeah. where I wanted to start with Egwene. Like, she, she well, has... I, I, can, Sorry, I can understand Rand's and Lan's point of view there, because they're in such a, like, a fraught situation. You know, they're, they're, at least in Rand's perspective, like, the weight of the world is on his shoulders, right? And he's like, hey, if it worked, it worked. That's all I needed. I can't spend my time worrying about what might have happened. But at the same time, I can definitely agree. A coin toss? Really? With with the perfect... What? A coin toss. That's my problem. It could have turned into disaster, but it was based on a coin toss. Yeah. Yeah. Rand doesn't know how good Matt's luck is. is. Post-talk, I can understand Rand and Land saying, like, listen, all that matters is that it worked. 
we if it didn't work, we would be dealing with the consequences otherwise. But it didn't work. There's no use worrying about it now. But beforehand, I like the mentality that they took going into that. I would never personally have agreed with. Like, I I am not that kind of risk taker. Yeah, I, I, I guess I think. So I go ahead. Egwene and, and Warren have a great point there that like, like hey. You know, if I were in, in Rand's shoes there, the only time I would have made that choice would have been if I knew, absolutely knew, there was no other option. You know, I, I would say the only thing wrong with that is Rand and Land's argument that, oh, well, it, it works, so there's no point in worrying about it now, after the fact, is faulty yeah. because... This is a, a philosophy that you can just carry forward and make this exact same mistake and have it turn out in, as a disaster when you do it again. Like, you have to learn from your mistakes. Sure. And I think this was a mistake. It worked. But I just, I, I think the logic that went into it was for entirely the wrong reasons. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, he right, did feel I mean, pressure to walk there. Yes, it would take forever. But you're not going to risk killing yourself and dooming the pattern as a whole. I don't well. know. I mean, he didn't know that he would risk that, although he probably would have risked it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. So. But, but anyway, no, we're still on the Gwen. That's though. a fair point. Yeah, it's a fair point. Um, I I think Egwene in this segment is um, pretty much fine. Uh, some of the groundwork is laid for, unfortunately, some of my biggest problems with her, which we'll discuss over the next like three or four episodes uh but but in this i i like her eagerness to learn i like her willingness to acquire new abilities to help the cause so to speak um i also am very intrigued through the first half two-thirds of this book by the uh implications of dream walking that were mm. given. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and we'll discuss this a little more later on, but if, if you're listening to this episode and you've read the whole series, I would encourage you to go check out uh, the Dusty Wheel episode from yesterday, which was uh, September 7th. Uh, we went way in depth on dream walking and uh, future knowledge in the Wheel of Time and some of the implications and world building Robert Jordan uh, uh, used and didn't use. So, yeah, I, I want to talk about that later on in our own podcast series because, Rob, especially, I want to get your opinions on oh. it. Um, but I, I don't want to spoil things for Peter, so I can't talk too much. Uh, but I think it's it's really cool to see, at least in this book, Egwene's first steps in her training to become a dreamwalker and how much of a, a tremendous impact Teleron Riyad can have on the real world and on the events of this series. Yeah, no, definitely. Watching Egwene kind of jump into these lessons with the with the wise ones and completely dedicating herself to that cause and just showing her complete just willingness to like just to literally and figuratively bust ass yeah right to learn what she wants to learn i mean we're, we're seeing such a stark example of that in the second third of this book and this is this is some of my favorite Egwene in the entire series 
I think that the wise ones are the mm -hmm. perfect type of Definitely. teachers for her. She had some from the Aes Sedai, now she's having some from the wise ones. All. They can handle her stubbornness first. I'll, I'll discuss that later, Jared, with you off air. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so, yeah? Alright. So, uh, yeah, but, Egwene. Uh, Anything else, Egwene? Peter, what do you think about Egwene? Um, I don't really want to spend any more time on Egwene. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I do think that her... Her ego comes through a little bit in her training with with the wise ones. Like like you said, she sure. does show a um, great p propensity for learning, but you know, it, it, like just just her her confidence with how much she can take on between that and what she's balancing with the White Tower. Right. Yeah. 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 yeah that's that's good. Um. I feel like the last thing to really tackle here is just Matt and and the Eelfin and the second redstone doorway. Sure. Um, and and uh, straight away, I want to address his hanging. Okay. Because I know there's a kind of a contentiousness around this scene in the fandom, and I want to like you know go straight out here. Matt did not die. This is not where Matt died and lived again. Nope. Yeah. Uh, both Robert Jordan and Brandon Sanderson have given quotes on this. Robert Jordan said, Matt almost died. Uh, Brandon has made it clear that there was uh, a, a different um, full fulfillment of that prophecy, a, a different way it was, it was uh, brought about. Matt did not die while hanging on the tree. So... Yeah, absolutely. Uh, like yeah, the, as the we fact stated that before, Rand was able to just perform CPR on him. Yeah, like, I as we stated feel before, like that should be enough. Randall Thor cannot you know? resurrect the dead. We just said that. Yeah, yeah. This is not yeah. Randall Thor resurrecting the dead. Matt was almost dead. He did not die. And but so on this topic though, I want to come back to my first reading of these books, and you know okay. we got. At the beginning of this book, we got Matt's prophecy, right? You know, to die and live again. This fate to die and live again. And I thought it was a figurative thing. And it was... Uh, this was because of the discussion on the slope of Chandayar, where the wise oh. ones have this whole ceremony, right? And they're like... Um, y when you go into Roydion, they're like, you are dead to us, you know, all of that. And I was like, oh, well, Matt's going down, right? <laughs> so, so he's got this, Matt has died and come back out of Roydion. So he has died and lived again, right? Could you I imagine mean, you if you fulfilled that? that literally like a chapter or no, two but, after but hearing what, that for the first time? That would be awesome. That's what I'm saying though. Can you, can you argue with that? You I can't really can. argue with that logic. I, I can't argue with that logic. Obviously, like, looking back on it, it seems foolish. But in the moment, I can see myself absolutely. If I had made that connection, I would have thought probably something very similar. Oh, damn. No, no, but, gonna, but I'm saying, yeah. like, like you I can could, see that. to this day, you can make an argument yeah. that, like, that that is the moment, right? Like, <laughs> Good. Because, and, and I don't want to go into too much further detail because we have Peter here, but, but this is, I, I, I think... I think this is a, a, an intentional language choice that Robert Jordan made on the slope of Chandair. That that they have this, uh, you know, what to dangle it in front of us. 
you know, yeah, exactly. It, it's hmm. and, and I'm blown away that nobody ever discusses this in the fandom. I'm blown away by it. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I see what you're saying. I agree, but I'm not blown away by it because so. I haven't thought about this before myself. It's interesting. <laughs> Yeah, I never thought well, of that. But uh, that's that's all I wanted to say on that subject. I, I mean, I I would love to to have some listeners chime in, you know, on our on our Facebook page and let us know. Like, did you ever consider that being, uh, you know, the the fulfillment of the prophecy here? So, uh, but yeah. but with Matt Matt outside of this this prophecy in the hanging. Um, I think the whole um, Rodion sequence is comedic with him. Okay, because I can, it, I can see it's, it. Yeah, it, it's like all dramatic irony, essentially, where we as readers like know, like, come on, dude, you're not gonna get the same deal going through this doorway and encountering a completely different set of creatures and a completely different environment. Why are you expecting to get answers again? You know, like, I, I, I don't know. That was my impression. At least the first time I was like, why, why are you so stuck on this track? Hell yeah. <laughs> Start listening to what they're saying <laughs> because he's bullheaded. I, I loved that scene with the eel fin though. I, it was just, it's so trippy. <laughs> and oh yeah, it's it's just so different than other fantasy that I've read and showcases the creativity in this series. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's uh, as we discussed in the Dragon Reborn episode. So so that world that he goes into through the door, it's a parallel world, and and things don't work the same way there. You know, and and. Uh, it's funny to see Matt try to like get his head around the two different doorways and, and how he's going down the hallways and he looks behind and, and they just like disappear into like a point instead of actually having like real physics. I don't know. It, yeah, it's, the, the, yeah. The, the weird geometry, the way that like the trees seem to appear in different windows, but it's the same trees. Right. Like these, yeah, that whole world is just eerie. It's creepy. It's it, it's chilling. And I will also point out uh, the when he looks out the windows, right, and he sees like the towers. Yeah. One of those is totally the Tower of Genji, right? Yeah, I think it I, wasn't that confirmed. I don't. I, yeah, that, that's what so I always I thought. Yeah. Um, um, and I feel I, like there's no other explanation. I will say it was in this part first before I continue. It was in this part, yes, that uh, yeah, Brigitte, with Slayer and yeah, sorry, yeah. Uh, Brigitte uh, warned Perrin about the Tower of Genji. Yep, right, yep. And, where, and where he chases Slayer. Yep. I loved how she described the Aelfin and the Eelfin. She told Perrin something along the lines of the inhabitants of that world beyond are not evil in the classic sense, but they are so different from humanity that they may as well be. Yeah, I found yeah. that so creepy and poignant. That was just awesome. <laughs> what a perfect way to describe those creatures. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Jared, Peter, do you have anything about Matt that you want to bring up, or nothing that hasn't yeah. been said? Okay. Well, then let's let's move into some uh, final thoughts about this segment of the Shadow Rising. Cool. Uh, I have one thought each about Moiraine and Kuladin. I'm um, glad you brought up Kuladin. Yeah. Heck yes. Um, first, I'll just get this one about Moiraine out of the way. 
I, Moiraine journeying into uh, Roydeon is one of the badassest things she has ever done. And that's that's saying something. I mean, she does not get enough credit for it, I think. Th this is something, if you think about it, this is something that kills a majority of the Aiel who try it. I mean, Rand and Matt barely made it back, and that was after cheating with that huge refill of water in their bellies. Yeah, Warain, yeah. <laughs> we're talking Warain, five foot zero inches, pasty white Kyrianen, did it a la birthday suit. Kudos. Yeah. Like, Warain has, has has henceforth proven once again that she does not around. I love <laughs> that. So that that's that's my Warain thought out of the way. Anything else Warain we want to talk about before I just jump onto my uh, Kuladin thought? No, go to Kuladin. Okay, cool. <laughs> I thought Jod uh, Joden, listen to me. Jordan sowed the narrative seeds for this character very well. Uh, we, we can clearly see that Kuladin is a very hot-headed, egotistical, revolutionary time bomb. But his, his frustrations are kind of clear. Not only is he angry at the audacity of Rand and Matt even arriving in the in the waste to begin with, but then mm -hmm. asking to enter a Roydeon, it is kind if you think about it, especially Drew and Jared going forth what you know about the Aiel kind of culture, that is rather bizarre. And on top of that, he sees them granted permission, and then he gets openly humiliated by the wise ones. I mean, I'm, I'm not sticking up for the guy. He's clearly an emotional dumpster fire. But he's not exactly <laughs> an unfounded antagonist. When random so, Matt... Sorry. Well, isn't... Um, wasn't the other dude... Wasn't yeah, the other dude who was in there his he was, yeah. he was supposedly something. going to yeah. uh, become the, the, the a clan chief of the Shido, right? Yeah, that and, was what he was in there yeah, for. And then when Rand and Matt return from Roydeon, and Muradin does not, you know... <laughs> I, I just I, I want to say that Jordan nicely set in motion everything to come with Guladin. It was awesome. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. it, it makes sense, uh, especially for a character who's established to be impulsive. Yeah, and maybe doesn't think things through. I mean, he relies so much on Aiel tradition for his arguments, but then he ignores Aiel tradition when necessary to uh, reinforce his arguments. Um, he's but like he really does come across in a lot of ways as like the petulant teenager right like he's like but I wanna yeah. you know <laughs> and and uh, it's it's of course no surprise that the wise ones don't give him permission you know uh, even even if Muradin died you know they're like he we're we're not gonna you you would make up a, a poor clan chief. We're not gonna give you permission to go in. And Yeah. It's I don't know, like, like there there are a few okay points that Gulladin brings up, especially around Matt. But with Rand I think he's totally unfounded. Like Rand is clearly of Aiel descent. Like he yeah. he yeah. he has and and uh, of course, from the wise ones' perspective, as dreamwalkers, they have at least an inkling or or some knowledge of what could happen and what Rand is. Uh, should Rand go through the columns? Yeah. But, but yeah, yeah, Kuladin, he's he's a character that I don't like. I mean, he's a he's a little whiny bitch. 
Yeah. But uh, from a certain perspective, I can understand why he is the way he is. Yeah. So. Yeah, I don't know. you're not supposed to like Gulladin. Um, my my last like thought though is on the somehow what we didn't touch on at all uh, the advent of uh, Kiel and oh. Jason Natiel. Oh my god. And how they show up and then like immediately afterward the whole crew is attacked by Shadowspawn <laughs> and uh, and and Imre stand and yep. it, it's uh, oh and also very very important moment top 10 most important moment in the whole series Matt gets his hat yes Matt gets his hat <laughs> <laughs> absolutely Critical. indispensable um, but no I I uh, I love the way they're brought in and how it's so clear that there's, like, something up, right? Like, Rand knows right away. He's like, he's like, yeah, no, there's at least one Forsaken here. I see what's going on. <laughs> and, of course, it's not the, the Forsaken he thinks it is. Right. Or, or the Forsaken isn't masquerading as who he thinks she is. Um, but... It, it adds a, a really nice flavor to what otherwise could have been a boring travel sequence, right? You know, we're, yeah. we're in the middle of the book, in the middle of a thousand-page, 394, 395,000-word book. It could be very, very easy to have the middle third be slow and boring with, like, a travel sequence, but instead... He gives us that travel sequence, but fills it with interesting character interactions and action sequences with these like shadow spawn raids and and uh, the the creepiness of like Hadnen Kadir and Isendre and the the weirdness of uh, Kiel and J Jason Natiel and I I really appreciated how Robert Jordan bridged this running start with the book to what we'll discuss next week a an absolute dynamite conclusion so that's my final thought yeah I didn't realize quite where we were at with the desert travel scene which is why I didn't uh, bring it up at all but you know I'll go back to I guess what I said at the beginning of this podcast about I agreed with Rob that the, the pace uh, did slow down, and while I haven't changed my mind, I, I see, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I just see the multidimensional nature of this part of the book where we expand the world in space with, you know, we get a lot in the Aeol Waste, and we uh, see a little bit more with the Sea Folk, and then we uh, see a little bit more, like Drew said, with... Um, I believe he used the word burgeoning societies of channeling, and then uh, we we expanded we expanded on on time in in terms of the history of of the Aeol, and then we expanded in multi dimensions with the Aeolfin and, and the Eelfin, and and that's all, um, that's all tied together in 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 a really nice package. Um, since we didn't really discuss the uh, travel scene so much, I guess in my final thoughts I'd say 
I enjoy the flirtation between Rand and Avienda. I thought that was <laughs> endearing character development. And then we didn't talk about um, Aram, and I I, I, oh, I don't yeah. think he's like a major character or anything, but... You know, after getting the Aiel history, when he wants to abandon the way of the leaf, I'm like, go for it, man. You got Aiel blood in you. Go get yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I always have felt like <clears throat> for a middle third of the book, it's pretty impressive that you don't really want to put it down at any yeah, point in the middle yeah, third. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely agreed. Uh, before we get to our closing, I just want to throw forth some like general reactions that I had. Just like a handful of general reactions to things that happened uh, during this sure. second third of the book. Um, so first comes... Uh, the, the I, I realized something on this reread. Um, I was wondering beforehand why it was the Wise Ones were only... like They were almost certain that Moiraine would arrive with Lan in tow. Um, and, I, and I realized why that was on this reread, because Lan was seriously considering accompanying Nanaive to Tanchiko, right? Yep. yep. Um, second impression, uh, I love the throwback, well, not the throwback, well, actually, yeah, now it technically is a throwback at this point. I brought this up in the Eye of the World episode, I think it was part two, um, between Matt and Rand, when they are in the shit, right? They, they have to run for their lives, and one asks the other, can you walk? And the other one says, walk, I can bloody run, right? Yeah. That yeah. happened in the Eye of the World, and now we finally see it happening again in Roydeon as they're running away from the dust creatures. Um, yep. the, Michael Kramer's delivery of Perrin Ibarra when he finds out that his family is dead, holy crap, magnificently done. Just mm, great, perfect audiobook narrating. Um, Loyal, <laughs> when he finds out that Perrin has lost his family, he offers to sing to the apple trees where they're buried. I almost lost yeah. that right there. That line yeah. hit me so much harder this time around. It hard, hit me harder than Perrin's actual breakdown did, like, this time around. Loyal, you absolutely so were. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, my last one is Will Alcine smiling, his, his <laughs> famous smiling at Bane and Chiad. And they just stop and they look at one another. Uh-oh! Yeah. My man! Well, I'll see. Look out, dude. You may be deeper than you thought. And I do mean that in all of its various implications. And <laughs> oh, I'll close out my part of the what, Shadow Rising part What two a way that. to head into the final draft. <laughs> <laughs> so, Rob, kick us off. What are okay. you drinking? So, as per my confession on the last episode, I thought going into this recording today that I, we were originally just recording the first half of the Shadow Rising, so I drank nothing but water on the past episode, so I could save this beer for this episode, because this technically happens at the start of part two out of three. Um, talking, of course, uh, as we were earlier, about Roydeon and the visions and the um, epiphany that Rand has in there, I have brought with me a DDH IPA. I have no Ooh, idea what nice. that means either. But Double this is dry hopped. Sweet. Okay, awesome. This is from a brewery that I have featured a few times on this podcast. This is also from Collective Arts in Hamilton, Ontario. This here, boys, this is called Life in the Clouds. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Love it. Thank you Love very it. much. Fit in, fit in. I mean, it's 6.1% ABV. Honestly, uh, last week after our, you know, lost episode, I went and I bought about... 12 more of these for like four bucks a peach, <laughs> a peach, a piece, because they were each delicious. 
and that's what I've been drinking all week. This is an awesome DD. What was it? DDH IPA. Yes. Yeah, double dry hopped. Awesome. So that's what I've been drinking. Very nice. Uh, Peter, what have you been drinking? Yeah, so I was just thinking about the descriptions that Robert Jordan gives us for the intensity of the sunshine as you're traveling through the Isle Waste. And okay. I'm just thinking, you know, as, as you're traveling through the desert, you probably, you don't, you, you don't want to be drinking anything too heavy. Maybe, maybe something light, something that roughly keeps you hydrated, something that keeps you relaxed and in a good mood. And I brought, to go along with that mood, from New Belgium here in Fort Collins, the Day Blazer Easy Going <laughs> Ale. Nice. Day Very Blazers? Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Sweet. Very fitting. Great. That's yeah. it's good stuff. And and I think uh, Day Blazer is also um, Call Drogo approved. Oh? Uh, is it? Uh, yeah. Who's the actor? Uh, Jason Momoa. Yeah. Oh, he, okay. He used yeah. to live in Fort I totally Collins. wasn't too fast in answering that. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, he used to live in Fort Collins, and, and uh, a few months back, what? he posted a photo with uh, a stabilizer can. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Holy crap. Um, so, so, yeah, Jared, uh, you still don't have a beer, right? <laughs> Side says everything. No. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, so today... I am drinking a classic, a gateway craft beer. I mean, this is a... Uh, gateway craft beer. I mean, I, this this was my gateway craft yep. beer back when I was like 19, 20, uh, just starting to, to discover... Oh, uh, excuse me. When I was 21, definitely I was 21. <laughs> I, I was definitely not 19 or 20. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't see. I didn't pick uh, up on that because I'm from Canada. Nineteen is age. Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, it's an American strong ale from Stone Brewing Company. Stone Brewing. And and this this beer goes out to Lord Luke and Cooladin, oh? and it is called Arrogant Bastard. Oh, shit. how did I know that was coming? I knew those two words were coming before you said that. Why did I know that? How did I know that? Because what I the? called Lord Luke an arrogant bastard oh, like 45 sh- minutes ago. It was subliminal. <laughs> Nicely done. I knew when he had special inflection on arrogant bastard that this was coming. I have. I think I've had a beer on the podcast once called Cheeky Bastard. Arrogant <laughs> bastard, though, is fucking good. Hell yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, this is... Uh, very accessible. I mean, if you live in the United States, you can get this beer in your local liquor store. It is a good <laughs> beer. I mean, it's if you like something strong, it's seven point two percent. Holy shit! Very hoppy, very malty, dark beer. Um, not not going to be like the thick, you know, kind of stout style. But like, if you like an IPA, but you want to maybe start branching out a little bit, Arrogant Bastard is a great choice. Cool. So, yeah. Awesome. And uh, on that note, this has been <laughs> episode 35. It has. Oh, my gosh. Thanks to Jared and Peter for sitting down with us today specifically for, what, three and a half hours we've been sitting down now or something like that? Recording two episodes. Thanks, guys. Yeah, it's 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 been fun. Got the Worth day it. blazer to get me through it. <laughs> right. 
But yeah, so uh, next week we will be finishing The Shadow Rising. We will be uh, doing a third episode on this book. And, you know, as always, if you're interested in supporting us, if you appreciate our content, especially, like, I mean, these last few books, check out, you know, take a second to look at our thumbnail artwork. Oh, my God. Danielle has just been killing it. Can she get better? I mean, how does she How does she do uh, it? I don't know. I I mean, we we tell her what books we're we're doing, and she comes up with and like no once guidance. a week she just, she just sends us one, and we're just sitting there going, Ooh. yeah, jaws on the floor. So you know, we're all of our Patreon proceeds are going toward paying Pat for our sound engineering and paying Danielle for you know her incredible artwork. So please consider supporting us on there. And, uh, yeah, as always, I'm your host, Drew McCaffrey. With me is my co-host, Rob Santos. So, And our special guest, oh, what is it this time? Lieutenant Jared Livingston. <laughs> he got demoted. That's right. <laughs> you got to bring a beer to get that rank back up. Yeah, yeah, my yeah that's up to me. Medically appropriate beer next time, I'll get or you won't get for you. promoted. Yeah. Uh, and and our Easy. second special guest this time around, Mr. Peter Goble. Yeah. Thanks, Peter. So, thanks, Jared. Yep. Yeah, uh, as always, thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. See you, everybody. Bye, guys. <laughs>